Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It is a great privilege and pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the paper, Comorbidity and Metabolic Context are Crucial Factors Determining the Neurological Sequelae of Hypoglycemia, by Catalina et al. in the November issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Professor Olivier Dulac, Professor of Pediatric Neurology at the University of Paris Descartes in Paris, France, who's one of the authors, and Professor Michel Willemsen, who's Professor of Pediatric Neurology at Radboud University, Niemeyen, in the Netherlands. Can we start with you, please, Olivier, to outline the paper and its background? With pleasure. So, very briefly, uh, we have knowledge about the impact of hypoglycemia, for instance, in premature babies, uh, even if it is asymptomatic. But we know very little about the possible impact of acute hypoglycemia when hypoglycemia is due to uh, an inborn error of metabolism, glycogenosis, or hyperinsulinism. So, uh, really, the question was uh, to know what are the factors that seem to contribute to hypoglycemia in this context? Clearly, it appears that major factors are, of course, the etiology, but also uh, prolonged convulsions and also and especially comorbidity, uh, which are fever, hypoxia, infection in general. And uh, this, in fact, seems to be the most important contributor to the brain lesion, whereas in this context, hypoglycemia, when it is asymptomatic, does not produce any damage. So this was for us quite a discovery. And if you compare two groups of patients with hyperinsulinism, one with comorbidity, and one without comorbidity, you find that comorbidity has the same risk of brain damage as beta oxidation defect. On the other hand, glycogen storage disease seems to be a factor that can prevent in part brain lesions, probably because of lactic acidosis, but this is not always sufficient to protect totally the brain and sometimes there may be dramatic damage several months after beginning the treatment that permits to reduce lactic acidosis. I found this paper very interesting because of what Professor Dulac already said. There are not so many papers on the effects of hypoglycemia on the developing brain, and this is a very large group of patients. I think that is reported, and of course it is a selection of patients with inborn errors of metabolism, but nevertheless that makes the series uh, maybe even more interesting because there are not so many confounding other factors around like you have on neonatal intensive care units in general. So what I found very interesting is that starting with 164 patients, in fact uh, one could say only 16 out of them, so less than 10%, ends with uh, with severe brain abnormalities. From a pediatric neurology point of view, we often see the patients the other way around. So we see the severely affected patients and think that hypoglycemia is almost always deleterious to the brain. But this series shows that many children survive uh, hypoglycemic events without any 
clear abnormality. Of course, there are some problems of interpretation because this is a retrospective study based on reviewing patient files, but nevertheless, I think that the number of patients and the, the details that are provided are very interesting. I think also, again, in general, it is what we learned already in our textbooks or what fits with our intuition that glycogen storage disease does not go along with a lot of neurological abnormalities in general, while fatty acid oxidation disorders are the, let me say, the bad, the bad ones. Um, and that is found back in this series too. So that is reflecting our general impression in practice, I think. In general, what I wanted to say about it, that it is interesting, and maybe one extra general remark, that is, this is, to my knowledge, one of the first papers that states very clearly that the context of the hypoglycemia, for example, fever or infection or hypoxemia or status epilepticus is, is very essential for um, its fi final effect. So hypoglycemia in the, in the context of something extra makes hypoglycemia a, a big problem, while hypoglycemia alone might be not as harmful as we always thought. Thank you very much for this comment, because, in fact, what was really astonishing us is that it seems to be a, a, a real paradox, biologically speaking, because you would suspect that when the, the body is in a bad condition because of failure for energy, it first tries to protect itself. In other words, homeostasis is something that should be protected first. In fact, it's not what happens. What happens is that it seems that all the energy is used to protect the body against the foreign aggression. And there are now some data that are coming experimentally to support this. And it could explain that when you have, for instance, beta oxidation defect, if you have fever, of course, everybody says, well, the child is going to become hypoglycemic because he's fasting, he vomits, and so forth. In fact, it's absolutely not the case. There is an excess of the use of energy to protect the body against what's going on instead of protecting himself, maintaining glycemia properly. I wonder... I don't know if I fully agree or if I understand it perfectly well. I thought that one of the clear issues is is that in the patients with glycogen storage disorders, the lactate elevations will protect them. I think will protect the brain against brain damage. I think that is what we see in our everyday practice. Very low uh, glucose levels in blood without any neurological symptom, and I, I think they are protected by the lactate, as is stated in your paper, of course. And so that is uh, interesting. I think in the in the other two disorders, there is no protection by other metabolites, and in the case of fever or hypoxia, so you you say the body spends its energy to protect the body against the attack. Hypoglycemia might reinforce the deleterious neuroinflammatory response induced by infection. So you have, in fact, you have two attacks to the brain. That's right. And in fact, uh, 
the, uh, the, the co-factors, the co they require energy. And they will pull the energy to themselves instead of maintaining it for the homostasis. And yeah, this yeah. probably contributes to worsen the hypoglycemia and worsen the consequences. Yeah, that's how I understood it too. So what I wondered, if you say it like this, or if it is like it is, it might be more important to stress pediatricians that treat hypoglycemia to also treat the other problems that are in the patient. Maybe even more important than we think to focus on infection or asphyxia than on the glucose itself. Absolutely. Well, that's exactly the feeling we had uh, finally in the end of this work. Yeah. Maybe what is not in your paper, but might be interesting only for the discussion, because it is such a common disorder, diabetes mellitus. We hardly ever see problems with hypoglycemia, long-term problems, sequelae from hypoglycemia and diabetes. And I think that might also be very interesting to discuss why not. And it might be in those circumstances that are generally not too bad. It's an excellent point, I think, including for newborns from diabetic mothers. Mm -hmm. I would add also, when you start ketogenic diet, mm -hmm. you're always worried about hypoglycemia, what will be the consequences, and so on. In fact, no consequences. No, no, no. no. Sure, monitoring the glucose is totally useless in this context. I agree, but now you change a little bit to ketogenic diet, which is perfect in this discussion. And as you might know, we, we follow a lot of patients with glucose transporter deficiency, and they are also an excellent example what the problems are when the brain runs out of glucose and how the brain changes to lactic acid, for example. Lactic acid is always very low in CSF of those patients because it is used by the brain and how interesting the effects of the ketogenic diet are in those patients. Perfect. And that's another example, also a little bit on the borders of the topic, of course, but nevertheless interesting. If we try to understand the effects of hypoglycemia or lack of fuel for the brain or changing to other fuels. We are very convinced in that glucose transport defect that those patients use their lactate as, as fuel. Very interesting. It's not very well reported in the literature, only in some small papers, but it's very clear from clinical observations. Yes, I totally agree. And it's interesting also to know that there are very little symptoms of glucose transport deficiency before a few months of life. Yeah. Yeah. For instance, they never exhibit infantile spasms. No. And this probably is related to the fact that glucose is not the major source of energy yeah. during the first months of life. Yeah. Or there are more possibilities to run on lactate or ketones. Yeah, that's my experience too, but that's not very well pointed out in the literature yet, but uh, nice to discuss it here. May, may I ask you one other question? regarding the paper and the patients. I was very impressed by the study, absolutely. But when, when looking at more detail, it's all about neurological sequelae of hypoglycemia, but um, the sequelae themselves lack details. You only have no sequelae, mild sequelae, severe sequelae. And I think it's not possible to do it other, in another way in a retrospective study, but on the other hand, the difference between mild and severe seems huge to me, and there's no details. And 
do you have any impression about that group of severely affected children? Were they all wheelchair bound? Were they all uh, they all severe visual disturbances? And what type of pharmacoresistant epilepsy did they have? Were they all uh, West syndromes, for example? Could, could you comment on that? How that group looks? No. First point is that we did not want to have sort of intermediary conditions. So mm-hmm. either they were with very mild sequelae or not at all, or they had major sequelae. Indeed, yeah. uh, in that case, they are highly handicapped. Yeah. Uh, now, we wanted then to be able to go in more detail regarding the clinical condition in a second paper and also to go on the radiological yeah. consequences. And the, the radiological consequences, this is a paper that was just accepted by developmental medicine showing that, in fact, the brain damage, its topography is determined not by the etiology or the severity, but by the age at which the damage occurred. So this was really also something we had not anticipated at all. No, that is very interesting because, uh, if, if you don't mind, we switch a little bit to that MRI details. Um, It's not part of the paper, which is a pity for the readership of this paper, but we will find it in another paper then. Could you lift the tip of the veil? If I had to predict the MRI abnormalities, I would predict that the patients in the severely affected group would suffer from MRI abnormalities mainly in the occipital regions. As we know that occipital damage goes along with hypoglycemia. Was that what you have found, or could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, this is exactly the case for the newborn, but no longer the case for older children. And although they are damaged, they have the same kind of sequelae in terms of severity. Mm -hmm. Infants exhibit lesions in the basal ganglia, and older children in the cortex. So this we did not absolutely not predict at all. But that is wonderful to hear. It is different than you expect. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's so much consistent with the maturation of the brain. Mm -hmm. You state in that severely affected group that patients suffer from intractable epilepsy. Yes. Well, regarding the clinical condition of the patients who remain with a dreadful handicap, this is uh, presently under study, and Mm -hmm. we hope we can prepare the manuscript for the end of the year uh, to identify the type of epilepsy and the type of neurological sequelae according to the brain lesions. And again, we have a number of surprises. (laughs) We will read it somewhere else. (laughs) 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 Maybe important for this discussion is you have three groups, no sequelae, mild sequelae, severe sequelae. Do you think that that is a good reflection of reality, or is it, as it mostly is, a spectrum from none to very severely affected children? Or is it really divided in two groups? No, really, uh, I I would say there are two groups, one with clear damage on the MRI and and the other with mild sequelae, which are just a speech delay uh, or a moderate epilepsy or difficulties in school and things like that. We always say as pediatric neurologists, and I suppose it's the same for you, there are no small handicaps. Uh, But 
but uh, I mean, uh, having having dreadful handicap is still worse, in my mm. view. What I found important, or maybe a little bit difficult in the presentation of the results, is that I've taken a calculator and turned some tables around, and only then, by doing that, I found out that, in fact, of all glycogen storage disorders patients, only one has severe sequelae, and from the fatty acid oxidation disorders, 8 out of 29 had severe sequelae, and from the hyperinsulinism group, only 7 out of 114. I think those numbers are not very clear in the text. You can calculate it yourself, but I found it impressive to see that, in fact, hyperinsulinism is not as dangerous as I thought, especially not if there's no fever or whatever, and that the fatty acid oxidation disorders, in fact, have a huge number of, of, of children in the group who are severely affected, 8 out of 29, that is more than 25%. And I don't know if we can use this uh, podcast to say anything about screening or newborn screening for inborn errors to to prevent sequelae like we are discussing now. Maybe that that might be interesting. In fact, papers like this provide us a very, very strong argument for early diagnosis and prevention of hypoglycemia and other complications. No, I, I totally agree. The problem with uh, fatty acid oxidation defect is that there are so many MCAD mm-hmm. uh, that will have absolutely no history of any kind. So uh, the, the probability, in fact, is that it's not 30% in the reality of uh, the predisposition but it's more likely maybe 10% or 5%, I don't know. Uh, Now, it's always a question of knowing that you have a sort of um, major danger over your head, whether you want to be aware of it or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is uh, an ethical issue, uh, I think, that certainly deserves being addressed since there is a possible treatment. And when you are aware that when you start vomiting and you have fever and that, uh, well, you may have a a major damage if you don't take care of that very, very quickly, because you are predisposed, I think it changes life. Mm -hmm. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to Professor Dulac and Professor Williamson for a very erudite, interesting discussion which has obvious clinical implications. Just to remind our listeners, the article is Comorbidity and Metabolic Context are Crucial Factors Determining the Neurological Sequelae of Hypoglycemia by Catalina et al. in the November issue of the journal. Thank you very much again.